0: Hello and welcome back to The Extras again for another week with Lachlan and this week with Peter. Thanks for joining us Peter. Great to be here. Hi everyone. Uh, Peter, we had a great weekend continuing in our study of Hebrews, thinking about holding fast to Jesus. Uh, Do you want to give us the 30 second version of uh, what you led us through on Sunday? Where have we been? The uh, Yeah, the 30-second version, we saw that
1: Jesus became a human being to help human beings. Great.
0: That's even better than 30 seconds. Yeah, well yeah, done. Yeah. Now, but, uh, a few questions came in, which we love. Thanks for asking your questions each week, church. It's so encouraging to see a church that wants to understand uh, and to be a church that uh, doesn't switch our brains off at the door, but thinks enough. So thanks for sending those through. Peter, we got a few that have picked up on the discussion of angels. I talked about angels a bit with Raj last week after chapter one. Um, you got some thoughts here. What, what are angels in Hebrews? How should we think about them?
1: Yeah, I love angel chat. Um, how, what are angels? I think um, a helpful way to think about angels in Hebrews, Hebrews I think is, is not particularly interested in angels as such. So you'll see it doesn't really do, Um, angelology, Hmm. right? So it doesn't say, here's what an angel is or is made of or here's a list of all the angels' names and the most important ones and their different rankings. Doesn't do any of that. Angels really, in Hebrews, function as a sort of a reference point in the cosmic order. Okay. So Hebrews imagines the, the world that God created and God in relation to God's world and the angels kind of function as a key reference point, kind of at, the, uh, at the, the, the border between the above, the heavenly, the unseen realm, and what's below that, the earthly realm that's accessible to us mm. and that we participate in in our daily lives. And the angels kind of mark the border of that. So above the angels in the cosmic order is God and God's heaven. And below the angels, uh, humanity, creative beings, and so our uh, angels become a way of kind of charting the uh, the shape of the world that God made, and uh, particularly uh, charting Jesus's movements within that world. That he belongs above the angels, mm. superior, equal to God, mm. Mm. but he actually becomes for a little while lower than the angels. He comes down in that cosmic hierarchy. Mm. He brings, he takes himself, and puts himself in the spot where human beings belong in the earthly world that we live in Mm. before
0: uh, returning in glory yeah that's helpful uh does that because angel there's a functionality to that kind of term as a, a role description as well being a messenger do you think that's at play in hebrews or is it more you kind of describe the nature of being this heavenly being Um, are both at play in hebrews one or the other yes i think so i mean I think
1: both are at play i think the primary thing is angels as a kind of a a marker on the cosmic ladder of upper and lower but because of where they are at that kind of uh interface you could say between the heavenly Mm. and the earthly Mm. they're perfect to act as messengers because they've got eyes on the heavenly, in a way, we can't have eyes on the heavenly. Yeah. We can't see and hear and observe directly what is God's will and God is up to. And so, angels kind of come to report to human beings uh, God's will and to make God's will expressed in the heavenly realms uh, accessible to us in the lower realms. So, mm. uh, angels are messengers, um, but even there, they that kind of contrast function still um, is at play because. Uh, You know, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2 talks about, well, angels had a message, but the son is Mm. above angels, higher than, superior to, better (laughs) than, more important than angels. So his message is worthy of much more consideration and careful attention than theirs.
0: Yeah, that's helpful. So if I'm hearing you right, uh, you're saying that when Hebrews talks and when the psalm talks about humanity being lower than the angels, you know, we're not just talking of physical place lowness like we're physically underneath them, but it is an order of authority kind of thing. Is that
1: yeah, order of authority definitely. Um I think physicality though is, is sort of a part of that. And so we shouldn't imagine the mm. angels occupying a, a very high up spot in the physical realm. The idea is that they belong to the heavenly world, which Mm. kind of transcends the earthly world. And above is a good way to talk about that kind of transcendence. But they're not literally up. Um, But, uh, you know, to be below the angels, which Jesus becomes, is to participate in the earthly physical world that we participate in, which Jesus does. As Jesus becomes a human being with a physical body, uh, walking
0: around in a physical place. Mm. Yeah, helpful. Uh, This leads nicely into kind of the next questions. We keep figuring out what the psalm is doing in Hebrews and the message of Hebrews at this point. Uh, So it talks about humanity being lower than the angels. It talks about humanity as having rule and dominion over creation, but that we don't see that at the moment. We don't see all things subject to humanity. Mm. Uh, Is everything subject to humanity at the moment? Is it not at the moment? Uh, Will we, like Jesus, one day be crowned with glory and honour in fulfilment of that psalm as well?
1: Right, yeah. So uh, Hebrews makes this point. It kind of quotes the psalm in chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. Now, he's interested in this everything under their feet. The author yeah. of Hebrews picks that up and says, okay, well, in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them, right? If we're talking everything. Everything should be under their feet. And mm. Genesis spells out pretty clearly what's meant there. Um, it is the birds of the air, the uh, animals that walk around on the ground, the fish that pass along the paths of the sea, right? So the created world subjected to human beings. Mm. the the earthly physical creation. Hebrews points out, though, yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. Now, it's a little bit of an elusive comment. The author doesn't spell out precisely what he means.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: But I think we can get a pretty good sense of what he has in mind as we get down to verses 14 and 15. He points out that human beings, all their lives... Are held in slavery by the fear of death. I think this is what uh, is in mind here, sort of saying, well, okay, in the beginning, we have human beings as kind of this uh, the vice regent of creation, mm. crowned with glory and honor, um, a little lower than the angels. They're the kind of the top dog mm. Um, mm. under heaven. And yet, uh, human beings are not this kind of uh, glorious reigning figure as we look at it now. Now when we see human beings, we see them enslaved, uh, snivelling slaves, mm. cringing in fear of death. Uh, and so I think that this is the kind of um, lack of subjection that is in mind. Human beings, far from being uh, rulers, have become slaves. Uh, now, other yeah. parts of the Bible will talk about... Um, Human rule over creation being disrupted in in other kinds of ways that doesn't seem to be primarily on view here, though it might be in the background. Uh, But I think the main uh, thing that we're driving at here is that crowned with glory and honour per Genesis one is hardly a good description of the state we find human beings in these days.
0: Yeah, I think as well on Sunday you brought up cats within this connection as well. Not a fan of cats, Peter.
1: Oh, I love cats. Okay.
0: I love cats, but uh, you know, you're not the boss of your cat. (laughs) That's not how the cat sees it. Yes, that's my experience of cats as well. Um, And this is a tangent that we can't go down, but it just comes to mind as we're chatting. Uh, I've had a friend who's just finished doing some PhD research uh, into the connection of what we might call wild animals and human dominion. Mm. And whether uh, in Genesis, you know, what was that meant to look like? Were there ever such things as wild and undomesticated animals? And what would human dominion over that look like? So more that we could chat about there that I think we would find interesting, but we won't uh, launch into there from Hebrews today. Um, Let's keep talking about Jesus, though, because Hebrews wants to point us to him. Uh, and there's some confusing language about Jesus in Hebrews 2, specifically that it talks about Jesus being made perfect. Uh, I think that's there in 2 verse 10. Now, someone from a question that's come through, I, th- I think they've heard you say on Sunday, Peter, that Jesus was made. Now, I don't think you would have said that. Uh, that that's not a kind of... Orthodox theological thing to say, is that you want to... No, let me uh, affirm, uh, begotten, not made. Yes, Jesus has always existed, God from God, light from light. That's it. So what does it mean there in verse 10 that Jesus was made perfect?
1: Yeah, well, um as always, you know, we need to read our Bible. We need to read in context, don't we? And so if we look at chapter 1, chapter 1 spends all this time explaining... Really, in lots of different ways, that Jesus is God. Now, yeah. uh, the kind of uh, summary statement, I suppose, is there in chapter 1, verse 3 the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Mm. Uh, so, the representation of God's being. There's all kinds of ways in chapter 1 that it talks about Jesus being God. Um, it makes it very clear that, in terms of the creator and uh, uncreated, divide Jesus belongs on the uncreated side mm. of that. All mm. things are made through him. Mm. He belongs on the creator side, not the creation side. Yeah. all things are made through him. Um, like God uh, is, he is unchanging. Um, everything changes, but not God. God is eternal. He remains. Uh, and similarly, you know as God is sovereign over the created world, so too is Jesus. He participates in God's rule over creation. So uh, there are lots and lots of different ways that Hebrews chapter 1 wants to show us that when we are thinking about the Son, we're thinking about God. Uh, There is nothing that God is that the Son is not. Mm. All of Godness is in the Son. But then we get to chapter 2 verse 10, and we need to take this equally seriously. Uh, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation, that's the Son, perfect through what he suffered. So this language for making perfect. Now, uh, because we've read in context, right, that Jesus is God, and particularly the eternal and unchanging God, we can't read made perfect and think that Jesus arrived at a state of ontological perfection over time he didn't achieve perfect being after previously not being perfect and then becoming perfect becoming god can you just flesh
0: out that term ontological for those playing at home yep so that's ontological perfection
1: that's what i was trying to do yep being being. so about his being he doesn't start with a non-perfect being and then attains to perfect being Um, so it's not like he starts Uh, Not quite God, not quite perfect, Mm, mm. and then becomes perfect, Mm. becomes perfect like God later on in his being. Um, For one thing, that would just be a total oxymoron, Mm. um, because to be God is Mm. not to become anything. Uh, As Hebrews 1 has just said, that God doesn't change. God Mm. is eternal. Uh, God is original. Um, And so you can't become God, because to be God is to be before all things and Ever, mm-hmm. uh, the theologians would say identical with himself he's always the same so yeah, you yeah. can't become God that's a nonsense mm. uh, so uh, Hebrews won't let us interpret it that way and uh, nor will the rest of scripture obviously now nor should we think about it in a, in a moral sense that Jesus became morally mm. perfect like, he used to sin but he worked mm. really hard on it and over time he managed to cut that out and he became perfect and he didn't yeah. sin anymore yeah. Um, Hebrews portrays Jesus as uh, like us in every way but without sin mm. and presents the sacrifice that Jesus offers as an unblemished sacrifice. So uh, there is, he, he doesn't have a history of sinfulness that he has overcome. Uh, he is in his entirety uh, of his human life morally perfect. Mm. So that's not what made perfect means either. It's not ontological. It doesn't have to do with Jesus being. Yeah nor is it moral to do with the way that Jesus behaves. Uh, in fact, this language of perfection, the best way to understand this is vocationally. It has to do with the job that mm. Jesus does. And so we talked on Sunday about, you know, the HR department is looking for the perfect candidate. And the perfect candidate is not someone who's ontologically perfect. You know, they're not looking for god yes. to become uh, sometimes they
0: might be. Uh, yeah that's
1: right yeah uh, seeking you know endless millennia of experience yeah. that kind of thing yeah. um yeah nor someone morally perfect although you know perhaps it'd be nice you wouldn't have to worry about the staplers getting stolen
0: sometimes they want
1: morally non-perfect
0: people for some jobs to anyway yes we digress. pressing
1: on, pressing on. <laughs> um They're just looking for somebody who has got what it takes to do the thing that needs doing. That's what perfect, the perfect candidate is. Qualified in that Mm. sense. They're up Mm. to it. Mm. And Jesus becomes qualified, able to discharge the job of saviour. And as God, fully perfect and lacking nothing, the Son is not yet qualified for the work of salvation because to save humanity needs a human being Mm. needs in fact a a person who is both divine fully God and human Mm. fully man Mm. that's what's required for this job and that's what Hebrews is trying to get at to be saviour to save human beings the son had to become a human being. Mm. So we get a perfect saviour, but he's made perfect because he becomes human. And to be a human is to live a life through time of gradually accumulating experiences that form who we are. And Jesus goes through that process and he does it in such a way that at the end of his work, he is perfect Mm. for uh, this role of saving human beings, uh, because he's become a human being, he's lived as a human being, he's died Mm. as a human being. He
0: is, therefore, the perfect saviour for human beings. Mm. That's really helpful. Thanks for unpacking the different options for what could be there. I think that's just a helpful way of going what it's not. Not ontological, not about being, not about morality, but vocational, about the job that needs doing. Uh, We've talked a bit there about Jesus being both God and man. Uh, a lot of time has been spent across history wrestling with how to put that precisely. And someone's asked a question that gets into some of that discussion. Uh, did Jesus die as a man or as God? Did he rise as a man or as God? You know, how, does, how do those two natures of Christ, how do we speak of those in death and resurrection?
1: Yeah, I think, as you say, um, this is some a, a part of um, the gospel message that has benefited from um, deep and careful thinking over mm. centuries and um, so a theological tradition has built up around this, which is a very helpful thing, actually. Godly uh, people have reflected for a long time about this with much prayer uh, and it has to be said, you know, much uh, error and debate mm. and, yeah. and kind of a yeah. gradual coming into truth over time um to figure out what this means um so drawing on that sort of tradition uh, i'm going to say we we really ought not to separate uh jesus activities in this way we have to think about everything jesus does as the work of one person Mm. right so he is one person he's not sort of like two persons or two people or two kind of individuals, sort of glued together like Siamese yeah. twins or something. And sometimes half of him mm. or part of him, the human bit does this thing, and then the divine bit does this thing. We might be tempted to think about it like that. We might say, "Well, only you know, only humans can die. God can't die. So the human bit of Jesus dies, but the God bit keeps going on." But at this point, we're we're, we're kind of thinking about Jesus as as some sort of a Siamese twin or something mm. like that. Mm. We're not thinking about him as one person. Mm. Jesus is one person in two natures. He does everything he does as the God-man. He doesn't do something as God, something as a man. Everything he does, he does as the God-man. He dies as God-man. He rises as God-man. He uh, accomplishes the whole work of salvation as the God-man,
0: the perfect saviour, the only one who could do it. Mm. That's really helpful. Uh, A book comes to mind that unpack some of that history and some of those theological conclusions. Um, I wonder if you have any recommendations on that, but I'll speak the one that uh, I've read in the past that has been helpful. It's called For Us and For Our Salvation, I think by Nichols is the author. I've got a copy on my shelf in here, so if anyone wants to come in and grab that, you're welcome to. Any books you'd recommend for people thinking about Jesus as the God-man? you read anything helpful there?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the absolute classic uh, is um, a, a book... Uh, by a a church father called uh, Anselm. It's called uh, Cur Deus Homo, Why God, Man? Yeah. Um, Or usually translated, you know, Why Did God Become Man? Okay. Um, Now, this is a a work of medieval theology, and uh, so it's it's kind of challenging and uh, in a different kind of ways you need to read it critically to uh to understand you know how anselm has captured the truth of god's Mm. revelation Mm. and how anselm has partially distorted the truth of god's revelation through his own kind of Mm. um, cultural and historical location so um you know for the bold do you need to know latin to read it or oh look it's not gonna it's not gonna hurt (laughs) it's been translated been translated um So for the bold, you could try that. But um, I I would uh, also suggest, I've not actually, I have to confess, I've not read this myself, but uh, Craig Hamilton, I believe Mm. a couple of years ago, published a book. I think the title is Made Man. Is that right? I can't remember the title, but yeah. yeah. So there's a book on this, which is um, the the formal title for what we're talking about is Christology. Uh, You oughtn't to be frightened of that. It just means talking about who Jesus is and what Mm. Jesus does. And so this book is a book about Christology, who Jesus is and what Jesus does. I believe it's called Made Man. You might want to check that out. That's great.
0: Thanks for that. A couple of questions to hit quickly here, and then we'll turn to some application. Uh, Someone's picked up on the language in verse 17. I think some translations might talk about propitiation there. Mm -hmm. Some might talk about atonement. Mm. Same thing? Different things?
1: Yeah. um, So... Uh, I believe ESV has in uh, in verse 17 has propitiation, but NIV, uh, the, the, the most recent NIV, NIV, the 2011 version, which is what we use at church, uh, reads in 217. For this reason, he, Jesus, had to be made like them, um, human beings, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. So different ways of translating that term, uh, that underlying Greek term there. So I do know he's gone with atonement. Uh, now, this is, I couldn't believe this when I found this out. But the word atonement is literally just put together. It's at one mint. Mm. That's and creative, right? Yeah. Unbelievable, right? Yeah, at one mint. And so um, we can think of uh, atonement, at one mint as the kind of generic umbrella term for putting things right you know so um relational restoration between god and people and so um it's all when we translate that term that greek term underlying their atonement it's just saying jesus makes relational restoration between god and people uh now what that doesn't do is, is make any kind of a claim about how jesus affects that relational restoration what goes into that and uh this is something that theologians kind of debate over. So everyone would say Jesus affects atonement. Jesus affects relational restoration between God and people. But how does he do that exactly? And you might find some versions of the Bible translate that word uh, to make expiation Mm. for the sins of the people. So kind of just getting rid of sins, uh, maybe cleansing, cleansing them Mm. away, Mm. Now, what that term you know that term captures something of how Jesus affects relational restoration, but it doesn't have anything to say about the idea of anger mm. or wrath. And sometimes people would like to uh, use that term expiation because they feel uncomfortable with the idea of talking about a God who gets mm. angry, a God who would punish. Um, the term propitiation does involve those notions of, of anger, of wrath, particularly of God's righteous anger, mm. his, uh, his, his judgment on sin, his just judgment, and the righteous anger or wrath that he expresses against uh, the offense to his own honor and the uh, ruination and degradation of the created world that's involved in sin. And propitiation has to do with that righteous anger of God being uh, expressed and exhausted in such a way that the perpetrator of sin is not eradicated. Mm. That anger is redirected. Uh, And so in the Old Testament, we see propitiation happening as God's righteous anger is expressed upon a sacrifice that is provided in the place of Mm. a human being who has done sin. And so... Uh, I would argue that this is actually um, central to the Bible's depiction of what Jesus does. That mm-hmm. what Jesus does on the cross is atonement because it is propitiation. Because on the cross, Jesus experiences in himself the righteous anger of God against your sin and mine. So he makes propitiation, and this is how he affects atonement mm. on the cross. Mm. So to... Uh, kind of sum up with quite a long answer there atonement is the, is the big broad term propitiation is one version of how atonement yeah. works and i think the biblical
0: version that's really helpful uh yeah good to unpack some of the again alternatives and what hebrews is actually unfolding there that's really good look for the sake of time we might hit two more questions so one more on the text and then one more practical one um sticking in verse 18 now so we're just moving slowly forward Uh, It says that Jesus can help those who are being tempted because he suffered. How does Jesus' suffering help him to help us when we're tempted? Stay tuned. Stay tuned? Okay, that's a very quick answer. <laughs> yeah, Hebrews, Hebrews loves to kind of flag
1: something it's going to talk about and then kind of digresses to talk about something else for a yeah. little while. So we're going to get into this later on in, uh, you know, sort of chapter 5 and then onward as we as it unpacks a bit more about what it mm. means for Jesus to be a high priest. Um, but the brief answer really is that, you know, because Jesus has experienced something similar to what we experience uh, when we are sorely tried and tested, He receives us empathetically. Jesus knows what it's like mm. to suffer. Jesus mm. knows what it's like to uh, experience God's call to faithfulness when that is not easy. When yeah. that will cause pain. When that will require determination and uh, and a price. There's a price to pay. Mm. Um, Jesus knows what that's like. And so, if you're saying, "God, I'm finding it really hard to be faithful to you. This is hard. I don't. I'm not enjoying this." Mm. Jesus knows what that's like. right? So if we are approaching God through Jesus, we have a, you know, a, a sympathetic ear is is too uh, kind of that's too naff an expression <laughs> for what you know. For Jesus, can I can identify? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think the other part of it, is how can He help us? Is that actually, and we get to this later on in say, um, eleven, uh, Jesus, chapter eleven. Jesus is a is a pioneer. He's he's run the race before us. He's he's actually done. What we need to do. Mm. He's run our course. He's done mm. it. And he's kind of both, um, he provides both instruction for how to do it um, and kind of inspiration, I guess mm. you would say. Like it can be done. Human beings can live a faithful life. Jesus has done it. And so he helps us in that he shows us uh, what it's like for a, a human being just like us. Um, just like us. That's important. It, you know, everything that we are, he is too. Mm. All our weakness, mm. he has too. Uh, he is sorely tried, sorely tried, and yet obedient yeah. in that testing. And that's helpful, Hebrews yeah. says.
0: Yeah. It is, it is. And that leads nicely to our last question because you bring up Hebrews 11 there and um, Jesus being that pioneer at start of chapter 12. Chapter 12 there says, therefore, fix your eyes on him. Mm. And that's what we get in chapter 3, verse 1 as well, right? Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Look at this one who is our help. Look at this one who uh, can be the inspiration. Look at the one who is our access to God as our priest. Fix your thoughts on him. Practically, how do we do that? You shared some ideas on Sunday, talked about some Bible reading and reflection, different ways to set that up. Any other things you want to share practically for how we can fix our thoughts on Jesus?
1: Yeah, well, I guess let me just underline that, uh, and just sort of say, uh, you know, the, the the scriptures are part of the the means that God mm-hmm. has given us to enable us to do this, and meditating on them and in prayer. Um, I think we shouldn't be too quick to say, oh, you know, I know about that stuff, but what's the what's the real stuff? Um, not that I hear you saying that, Lachlan. Not that I hear you saying <laughs> that, Questioner. Um, but I think that sometimes, but I shouldn't, yes. because actually, yes. you know, the God gave me the scriptures mm-hmm. for a reason. They're a gift. Mm-hmm. They're light for the path. And so that's something we ought to be doing. A couple other good ways we've we've talked about uh, reading theology, right? Mm. Um, Now some of us will balk at that idea, like, "Whoa, you know, I don't want to turn into an egghead. I just want to love Jesus." Uh, Theology is kind of runs totally counter that dry, horrible stuff. Well, no, (laughs) because we've just been reading theology here in the scriptures, right? Careful thinking and reflection and meditation on who Jesus is and what he's done and um, God has given us not only the scriptures but uh, given us the gifts of many uh, godly and faithful men and women throughout history who have applied their minds their God given minds in prayer and amongst the church to thinking about who Jesus is and what he's done so uh, pick up a book of theology Mm -hmm. you may find that it helps you to set not only your thoughts on Jesus but actually to set your heart on him too, that the more we know him, the more we will love him. We'll know him more deeply as we reflect on him and what he's done more deeply and that will cause us to love him more. So there's the books that we mentioned earlier on. Um, I would also suggest like just a, you know, a a, a, a straight up classic in this field. Uh, John Stott's The Cross of Christ. Mm, What a book. A classic for a reason. Um, Maybe you read it a long, long time ago. Have another go. Maybe you've mm-hmm. never read it. If you mm-hmm. never have, here is a, a book of theology which is deeply engaged with the Bible and just just unpacking. Just come into the Bible and say, okay, but what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Why does he say mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. How does that work? What has you know what what's what's true that means that our Bible authors say all these different things. Yeah, just leaning into that and doing it in such a, a warm hearted way that that um. He just can't stop himself. He's just dropping in hymns all the time because the more he thinks about it, he's like, oh, we we, should, we, we praise God. Yeah. It's like it says in the hymn. You know? yeah. He's yeah. doing that all the time. So read that. Read that. If you're not it's reading, a great book. Give it a go. Just give it a go. Um I think you won't you won't regret it. The other thing um, is uh music. Uh, talk about music, like music is a way that Christian thinking, right, with words, talking about songs, right? Uh, Christian thinking can stay with you Mm -hmm. throughout the day. Kind of music stays in your head, right? You know, good tune, good words. You might be singing that to yourself and it sticks with you. And again, it does that. I think music is a brilliant gift from God that really helps us to align our heads Mm -hmm. with our hearts Mm -hmm. Uh, because, um, in, in, in a song, not only do you, uh, hear the words, uh, you know, you're on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. You get to
0: feel something of what mm. that means. Mm. I find for myself with music, it's a helpful redirection of my thoughts. Um, so, you know, just recently I was lying awake at night, mind worrying with all sorts of things, and uh, trying to turn and pray and set my thoughts elsewhere. Uh, but it's so much more helpful to just flick on some music and go, okay, now that actually helps to redirect because it can cut through mm. and replace the whirring thoughts that were there. So it's something that I come back to quite frequently. Actually, my relational life with God, uh, alongside Bible reading, you know, none of this replaces, as you say, the opening up of the Scriptures, which make us wise for salvation, which equip us for every good work. Uh, what, what are you reading in the Bible at the moment, Peter? What's this looking like for you? Well, I can tell you I'm reading a lot of Hebrews right now. Right. Cool. Um, yeah. Is it a morning thing for
1: you? Do you have a rhythm, a routine? Yeah, or yeah, I'm trying to read the Bible. So what do I do? I kind of get up and exercise and whatever. And then um, when I come to sit down, I've uh, got some breakfast and I want to be reading. You know, as I'm now kind of sitting quietly. First thing, want to be reading the Bible. So I've been reading, trying to go along with the Psalms. So I started reading, you know, the old summer day through Jan. Yep, nice. And so now, uh, unfortunately, it doesn't align with the calendar anymore. So I'm up to thirty something, <laughs> but I don't know what. Uh, read a bit of a Psalm, think about that, uh, pray. And I kind of what, what I tend to do is, uh, I'm doing right now. Um, you know, I I don't have a years long habit. I've got just whatever habit works at the time mm-hmm. so I read a bit of a psalm think about you know, what it's saying about how I relate to God through Jesus and then I tend to look at my um, diary the tasks that I have to do for the day which is you know, you just got to do to be organized um, but I try to pray about the stuff I'm doing in light of the mm-hmm. thing that I just read and try and work out how what I read might shape the way that I um, do those things and um, you know there's not sort of super deep or super spiritual a couple of minutes but um, I find it a helpful thing when I managed it yeah nice
0: thanks so much Peter thanks for your time today uh, guys thanks for tuning in I hope that's been helpful to keep thinking into the book of Hebrews and to keep fixing our thoughts on Jesus as we reflect on him and Hebrews presentation of him it's a wonderful book I'm really enjoying coming back to the realities of who Jesus is what he's done for us week in week out so we're looking forward to this coming Sunday brief preview Peter where are we going to be? Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Great encouragement. See you on Sunday. <laughs> See you Sunday.